Well, Werther, we said right along when we started doing this, we were going to bring in people with really fascinating stories. And uh, the first person on the top of our list was, of course, Paul Shirley. So, Paul, first of all, well, welcome to the Has Been Hoops podcast. Thanks for having me. And I will probably disappoint when it comes to <laughs> storytelling. Well, let's... We, uh, you haven't heard the lead up yet. We we can we can go and redo it. But uh, mate, we um let let's start back where we started. We uh we first met in Russia, and we've described your but you you played all through Europe. You've been in the NBA. You've done the summer league. You're a self described basketball vagabond. But you found your way into Russia. I, I would like to start there because. By way of introduction to maybe why we're doing this is that, as you know, my book's sitting back over my shoulder here and you were a big part of helping me get that book done. We lived in Russia and I, for the life of me, couldn't describe what living in Russia was like to people back home. The best analogy I've got, it was like trying to describe childbirth. Unless unless you've been through it, you can't possibly begin to describe it. You could. You're the only person... That I, so much so that I used to steal your emails. You sent them to me, and I'd put my name in the end and send them to my family. <laughs> talk to us about talk to us about Russia from someone who can describe it a lot better than what I could back in the day. Well, how did you you describe it? What was your what was your method besides stealing from me? It was, it was bloody cold, and no one spoke English, and it was shitful. But I learned a lot about myself. It, mm-hmm. it, it toughened me up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I I felt like I might disappear all the time, and that was unsettling. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I think it's hard for us, even Americans or Australians, both of whom live in large countries, to conceive of how big Russia is um, and how much empty space there is. So one thing, as your listeners may know, we played in Kazan, Russia, which is 500 miles to the wrong direction from Moscow. And um, it, it seemed stark to me how when you would get to the edge of the town, it just ended. There was no transition. It was just like suddenly it's the field. Um, and it, I think, left me feeling like the whole country was unfinished, right? Which it, it just felt like they hadn't it – was, it was almost like the facade of a civilization in a way. Um, I think it was also surprisingly second or third world, uh, which was weird having been a fair number of places in Europe previous to that, um, that this this country would have teams playing in the same leagues as teams in Barcelona and Madrid and Paris and wherever else. Um, So I think it was it was jarring just because I had been already to a fair number of places in, in Europe, but was surprised at what Russia was like. The basketball itself, you were there, were you there for three months? Because I, I do remember, you, it was only two, is that right? Yeah. 
And like two uh, years, much, but it was only two years. Well, yeah. <laughs> well it, it did go better. Well, uh, um, we won't get into specifics, but I, I remember by the end of it pleading you to stay. Um, and they threw a lot of money at you, but you just needed to get out. It was two months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think I was, I was at a spot in my career where I was pretty burned out, like in general. And Russia only served to put an exclamation point on that. Uh, as you can recall, it was not a very functional team either. Uh, and that was frustrating to me. Uh, more even than the weirdness of living in Russia. It was just a poorly functioning outfit overall. I mean, they paid us on time, which was amazing. I'd been in other places where that wasn't the case, but um, it, it just seemed so toxic as far as a culture of the team that I was, I, yeah, you're right. I turned down $55,000 a month for five months uh, to stick around, ready to go home and quit playing basketball. Um and then, as uh, you know, Chris, I got home and went to my parents' house. I was living in Kansas City at the time, had a house in Kansas City whenever I was not off gallivanting around the world. And I went to my parents in rural Kansas, where I'm from, to open some Christmas presents from the, whatever, 10th Christmas I'd missed in a row. And uh, that night, my agent called and said that uh, the Phoenix Suns had made a trade and we're sending three players away and getting only one in return, and we're going to sign me the next day. So, it Not really, as the one in return, but as an add-on to the one in right. return. Right. Well, yeah, so they had traded three guys for Jimmy Jackson, and they, that meant they needed to sign somebody onto their roster. And so I was going to be the guy they signed in the middle of January for the rest of the season, which ended up being the longest contract I had in the NBA with the very best team in the NBA. Um, so, you know, you could make the point that because I – stuck to my principles about not wanting to play in Russia where things were seeming to be pretty dysfunctional and toxic. Uh, and instead saying, I'm going to go somewhere else. I ended up in a great situation, like maybe the best of my career. Um, so it, it was, um, I think also quite the contrast between the Unix Kazan organization and then the Phoenix Suns, which happened to also be a really well-run NBA team, because as you know, not all NBA teams are necessarily well-run. Um, I think that was one of the things that was frustrating about my career in general was there were a lot of basketball teams that were bad, not because the players were bad, but because the whole organization was just broken, um, as is true with any business, I suppose. Before whether you jump in, or I will just note for the listeners that that horribly functioning, poor dynamic team in Russia, we went on and won Russia's first ever European title in any sport since it joined the European Union. So to mm. your point, we were reasonably talented. We had a really good team with some big names. It's one of the highlights that I tell people back here, one of those little known facts that people know that we did when I was buried away in the mountains of Siberia. Go ahead, Werther. Um, and we're going to get back to the Phoenix Suns. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess my experience was playing in Serbia, very similar as far as being cold and, you know, the you get to the edge of town and that's it and there's there's nothing else. Um, having been in that position where you are relying heavily on the imports that you play with and the friendships that you grow, a lot of people in Australia know Chris from the NBL and a lot of people know Chris, they played in the NBA. 
talk about the Chris that you met in Russia and the relationship <laughs> that you guys had together and what sort of player Chris was in your eyes. Well, I think I was, I spent a lot of my time in Russia confused about personnel <laughs> because they had brought me over, I think, to replace Chris because he was going to be temporarily out because of his appendicitis, his uh, burst appendix is the more appropriate way to put it. Um, but I think they, as when I got there, they, they also sort of alluded to the fact that they were maybe going to have me replace one of the Americans that was there, but they weren't very clear about any of this. And in fact, I didn't play for the first month I was there. And I was like, well, I'm going to leave because this is terrible. I don't want to be here and I'm not playing. Like I was truly ineligible to play. I just practiced. And I was like, why did you guys, why are you paying me so much money to come over here and be cold and sad um, and give me things to write about? <laughs> uh, so I remember vividly we were, I was like, I'm going to go home because I had a, an opt out after my first month. And they, I think they had to pay like $50,000, not to me, but to somebody so that we, so that I could play in the game against Cheska, C-S-K-A, the big Red Army team in Moscow. Yep. Um, I think they wanted to prove to me that they would keep me around. So Chris and I actually played together a little bit in games. I do remember some game we played against a team from Israel where we beat them by like 40 at home because they were bad. And Chris was like the perfect player for me to play against because he understood how basketball worked, which was very rare, um, especially among high-priced import types. Like when I was in Spain and Greece, um, there were lots of guys who understood how to play basketball, but they were mostly the domestic players. Um, it was pretty rare that the hired gun mercenary also understood basketball. So I can, I can remember pretty clearly like Chris and I playing three on three, him rehabbing from the appendix, me still just lost in this nether world of not even knowing if I'm going to play on Saturday or if I'm just going to keep practicing. And me realizing like, oh, this guy knows exactly where to be all the time and how refreshing that was. And also how, in some ways, saddening that was because I thought professional basketball was going to be all guys who understood how basketball worked and that was almost never the case. And that was kind of depressing. We've already mentioned your, your books and your writing background, and, and we'll touch on that. Tell us the best story you wrote home from Russia. Chris, you should know better than to ask that question. You never ask someone to tell them the best story. The best story come up because you've had six beers and then you get around to the best story. You can't, you can't just prompt so he, somebody so to tell So again, tell us the best story. story. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm, my best story from Russia. I mean, I think my best story from Russia was, was leaving Russia. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was like, um, was that the relief that came from being, I had just turned, I guess, probably 26. Uh, I felt really old. Um, I had met a girl in Kazan who, um, when you guys, we played in, I think, the Czech Republic, and then we played in Moscow, and then the team was going back to Kazan, and I was leaving town. In some ways, it's miraculous that they let me leave. Like, I'm sure the team was owned by an actual gangster. Um, and 
this girl that I had met in Kazan took it upon herself to fly to Moscow to surprise me, I think to try to get me to take her out of Russia with her. Um, but what was cool was I had like two days before my flight left. So I got to just hang out in this weird hotel that had a bowling alley in the basement with this pretty Russian girl. And then I had to say, no, you have to go back to Kazan. I got to go to the next thing. Like you don't want to come with me. The, where I'm going is not glamorous. It's Kansas city uh, and my parents' house. So uh, back to Kazan with you. Hey, um, you mentioned uh, you went and joined the Phoenix Suns and I played with Steve Nash uh, back in the Dallas Mavericks days and without getting too far into Steve right here, he's probably one of the guys I came across in the NBA that I respected most. You had that long period of time with Steve and the way he's been able to, or he was able to drive that Phoenix Suns thing. Tell us a little bit about how rare that was, um, about that Phoenix Suns, because the best of my recollection, that was right in the middle of D'Antoni's seven seconds or less era where you just frantic pace up and down the floor and you really, or the club really changed the way the game was played at that time. Yeah, it was. So I'd gone to training camp with the Suns that year. And as I recall, D'Antoni had been hired midway through the previous season. Uh, they had traded away Stefan Marbury, maybe, um, signed Steve that summer, which was somewhat controversial at the time because he was all of age 30 and reported to have a bad back. So it was kind of questionable as to whether that was a good idea or not. Um, and I remember in training camp, there was uh, some amount of trying to prog prognosticate like how many wins would be good. The Suns the year before had been like, I don't know, 35 and whatever or something. Um, and D'Antoni on the drive race board was like, if we get to this many wins, that would be like a record for the turnaround. And they blew past that. It was a team that ended up, I think, 62 and 20 uh, in the regular season. Um, and like you said, kind of revolutionized the way basketball in the pros, at least in, in the U.S., worked because it was so fast-paced. It was so reliant on the three-pointer. Um, and it was really reliant on the relationship, I think, between the coach and the point guard, right, where the point guard in this case was Steve Nash, which is the right kind of point guard to have in that situation. Um, so it was uh, obviously a fun time to be there. Uh, and I think similar to what I was saying with regard to getting to play with you and seeing that you understood how basketball worked. The Suns had mostly found guys who understood where to be on the court. Maybe, I mean, like that's hard to say about Amari Stoudemire because he, he was hardly a, a basketball whiz kid, um, but he was young enough and impressionable enough that he would like take orders from Steve and, and be in the right place. And Steve was so good at coaching on the court that he was able to, get people to the right spots um, without having to necessarily um, tell them that overtly. So it was, um, it was a, a bit of a dream come true for me just to be in a place where people seemed to be happy that I was there every day, um, where everybody was okay with their roles. I mean, I didn't play very much. I was very much a, a like into the bench guy, but I, I felt no sense that that was wrong or that I should be playing more because it was such a good team. And 
everybody was so supportive of one another. Like, why would I want to upset that fruit cart? So it was, yeah, it was a, a rather calming time in my life, which was, has been pretty rare. Through that time, you, if I remember this correctly, you started writing, whether it was for the sons, for yourself, but essentially you wrote a blog back in the day, your observations from the end of the Phoenix Suns bench. You've always, for me, you've always enjoyed putting into words and describing what goes on in a professional athlete's world better than anyone I've ever been around. Describe what you wanted to share from the end of the Phoenix Suns bench that wasn't necessarily necessarily related to on the basketball court because here in Australia, I know it's the same as America, most basketball fans will base their opinions on what basketball life is in the three hours they watch on game night and a few media stories along the way. What did you see and what, what did you want to share with the public back then about what the NBA really was? When I got out of college, I, my first job was playing in Greece, which is actually something of a misnomer because that summer I had gone to camp with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and then I went to training camp with the L.A. Lakers. Uh, so, so Greece was my first real permanent spot or semi-permanent spot. And when I got there, I started writing email updates to people about what was going on. Uh, and I had this real... Uh, fortuitous occurrence where people kept writing back to me, which felt really good, right? I would write these little missives and, you know, this is Greece in 2001. So it's, I didn't have a cell phone. Uh, internet was pretty hard to come by. A lot of times I was at internet cafes. So there was this real um, Pony Express feel of, oh, wow, I got an email because I wrote this thing that made somebody laugh. Um, and the things that usually made them laugh the most or made them the most responsive were the stories that I told about the in-between, the logistics, the chaos of getting to Tel Aviv or whatever the destination might be. Uh, so that continued for the next three years, right, where I was playing all over the world and in the minors and working my way into the NBA and then getting cut again and, and having all of these heartbreaks. Um, so I already knew that what resonated with people wasn't description of gameplay. It was how do I feel about the weirdness of this world? And when I'm, I guess, the most misanthropic about it, when I talk about how it's not nearly as, as glamorous as people think, that's when I get the most response. So I was already kind of, I'd already adapted to my audience and then when the Phoenix Suns came to me and said, would you write a blog? I more or less did the same thing I'd already been doing, which was to not talk about the basketball and talk about all the stuff that was ancillary to the basketball, knowing that there was a crowd of people out there that was like me, that if I had been on the outside looking in, would have been more interested in that or would have found that funnier and more entertaining. So I guess I was already acculturated to what I thought my audience would like, because I was thinking, what would I like to read? Like what would get me going? You fast forwarding through while, while we're talking about your writing and we'll give you a little plug here. We're, I'm not sure how many books of, can I keep my Jersey? Your first book you sold in Australia, but 
I can't tell you the amount of people I come across who've read that thing. Dan here, you've gone and written novels since you've, you've written for ESPN, you've done everything. You've transitioned into writing novels and while we've got you here, tell us about your new novel that I believe you released this week. Yeah, it comes out um, this week. As we're recording, it's only two and a half days away. Um, this one is uh, about a rock band of all things. Um, I got to write about music for ESPN for a year and a half, which was a really cool gig, and and also just have a bunch of friends in the world of music, and so have by proxy gotten to know that world. I think it also works as a way to talk about basketball, right? So it's a similar world in that it's not nearly as glamorous as people think that it is. Um, but it was fun for me to write about it because I don't really want to write about basketball anymore because, good God, I've had enough of that. Um, so it was uh, fun to, to step into a world I sort of know, make up enough things where, like, I'm sure that my friends who are in bands will roll their eyes a couple of times, but I think the general population will get the sense that he kind of knows what he's talking about with this. The, uh, the vague, the tagline is effectively that this band was on the verge of hitting it big after two albums, and then they had this spectacular onstage breakup, and so they've all gone their separate ways at a fairly young age of like 30, and then they get called to do a reunion show, and then they realize, oh shit, maybe we should put this thing back together. Who's David? That's the name of the band, actually. It's the name of the, the band's name is David. Okay, I wondered if there was a David that yeah. you'd loosely based uh, this no, off. That's uh, that's uh, that's the name of the band. Sort of a David hey, so, so and we'll reference. Gotcha. Uh, really quickly, tell people where they can go. They're here in Australia. Where do you go to book it? Or where do you go to buy it online? Because I know people will. Yeah, just go to Amazon.com. It's all in written. Okay, that's, okay, right. <laughs> that little website, right? Hey, um, here's a question that can be <laughs> the shortest answer, or we could we could spend however long digging into this. But the longer I'm around sport, and I think that when you were around it, we always found parallels between life, business, and sport. Um, you were great at that. Talk to us about what basketball when you're involved in it taught you about life and how you think and i'll give you another plug you've run a company called the process uh in la and now in denver where you're i thought to the best of my knowledge educating people who might have difficulty self-starting people who need some routine people who need what we were given as athletes to achieve their full potential and to be a lot more productive but tell us the biggest takeaways i suppose you found seeing sport more broadly than what many athletes do and how you like sharing that with the broader audience that isn't a sporting person? I think it's mostly about failure uh, and how failure leads to adaptation, but that the quicker you can fail, the quicker you can adapt. So in sports, we miss shots, we have bad practices, we have bad games, we have even bad seasons at times. And uh, there's a repetition or inevitability about the next play, the next practice, the next season that I think trains you to understand the length that it, or the, the amount of time it requires to succeed. Um, and that if you're going to succeed, you're going to have to take that feedback all the time of, 
well, that didn't go well. What am I going to change? Right. It also teaches you consistency over the long haul in that if you took the microcosm of one shot, one basketball shot, that's probably not a great predictor of your entire career. Right. Um, so you are learning incrementally along the way, but you're also not attaching to each of these little failures or successes too much. Right. Um, and I think that's something that, uh, is more and more applicable all the time because so many people are engaged in jobs where they have really long projects and they don't get a lot of feedback along the way. Their feedback may be just like that email went pretty well. I don't know. Or that call went okay. I'm not sure. Um, they don't have the same feedback loop that maybe a woodcutter would have had where you go up and you chop a bunch of wood. At the end of the day, you have a big wood pile. Now people are left in this weird world where they just don't know, did that, was that good or not? And I think that's very similar to how sports work, where there's a lot of practice where you're like, I don't know, maybe I'm pretty good. Maybe I'm not. And then tests come up along the way. Uh, so I feel... I'm not going to say lucky because uh, there was a lot of, you know, people guiding me in this direction and uh, a lot of self-starting of my own, but I feel fortunate that I had that background, which in some ways is kind of like being in the military, honestly, where you just learn to do things the right way over and over again, because that has trained me for writing and has trained me for running business. It has trained me for helping other people figure out how to build these systems in their own lives. Hey, Paul, I'm not sure how much basketball you watch now or how much uh, you watch of these first take sort of shows or whatnot. Uh, JJ Redick is probably the first guy that I've seen since you were on ESPN that could analyse the game in a way that if you're a basketball player, for the most part, you're like, he makes the most sense on TV with what he's seeing and what he's relaying to the general public. At the same time, JJ Reddick's made enough money that he doesn't actually give a fuck about what anyone else says or thinks on ESPN. And he's actually the, the counter-argument to a lot of the bullshit that we hear on, on the TV. Have you seen that or listened to JJ Reddick? And do you see a little bit of JJ Reddick in, what, in, in the way that you used to approach ESPN as well? Certainly. Uh, I know JJ only tangentially. I've, I did his podcast while I was in LA at some point. Um, and, uh, I think in general, there's a, there's always going to be an undercurrent of a thirst for that kind of perspective. Um, but at the same time, the, the world of sports doesn't want to be poked fun of for too long because it kind of relies on this circus like atmosphere to exist, to continue to go. Right. So like I think I've found some success in a certain smallish audience that was interested in the kind of meta analysis of what was really going on. But in general, the proverbial powers that be don't love that. Um, so I wonder, will he at some point get kind of nudged out because there's a bit of a sports entertainment industrial complex that wants to convince people that the circus is real. Right. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I'm of course supportive of, 
of alternate takes. I just don't know, like, will that last? Do you guys feel it'll stick around or do you see what I mean? No, no, I, I agree with you. I think he'll get nudged out because for whatever reason, they prefer to hear the shit that comes out of uh, Kendrick Perkins' mouth or they want to hear Stephen A yelling more than anyone else. Whereas mm-hmm. JJ, he's very matter of fact. I think when he says something, I think everyone goes, to some degree, everyone goes, actually, I can see that. But when Kendrick Perkins says something, I think half the country goes, what the fuck are you yeah. talking about? Essentially, um, and uh, and at the he, JJ almost makes too much sense that I don't think he will last. Yeah. yeah, there's an interesting tension in talking about professional sports because, on one level, you want to make people believe that their, let's say, high school experience is similar to being a pro that they were also kind of close to it. But on the other hand they need to think that the people who are on the court have some kind of superpower they don't have, which almost dehumanizes them. And so they, in some ways they don't want a liaison between the two because it kind of takes the air out of the balloon. Um, I've seen that a fair bit with uh, some of my uh, interactions with fans from, my college basketball team. So here in the U S of course, after high school, we go to play college sports a lot. And, um, I've talked about how it wasn't like I grew up wanting to play for Iowa state university. It was not my first choice. It just happened to be that that's how things ended up. And even saying something as uncontroversial as that will get people all up in arms. Cause if they're from Iowa, which I'm, I'm from, Again, little tiny town in Kansas. So it's not far from Iowa. But if they're from Iowa and they grew up like as a high school basketball player, hoping and dreaming that they would get to play at Iowa State. And here I go and say, like, I don't I mean, I don't know why I went. I mean, I know why I went to Iowa State, but it wasn't like I aspired to go to that particular college. They'll freak out and say, like, well, how could you say that? Like, you should be so grateful. Um, And then if you start talking about like, well, gratitude, I don't know. I mean, you guys made a lot of money because we were there and we didn't get paid any of it. Like, I'm not sure that's, should I be grateful for that? I mean, I was grateful because it like led to me getting to play in the pros and I had some really cool experiences, but I also had a lot of stress fractures and spent a lot of time on painkillers. So like, is that good? Uh, They don't necessarily want to hear those things because it kind of, people don't like cognitive dissonance as we know. And if you introduce any of that into their heads, especially around sports where they have, they go to forget about their troubles. You can get yourself into some tricky situations, I think with fans. And I wonder if that is what will happen to JJ Reddick eventually. With, with that being said, you talk about greatness in there. I think you've got a different view of greatness compared to what the, the normal basketball fan would have when it comes to this Jordan, LeBron, Kobe situation of, like who's the greatest? And I, I know Chris has said, and I think Bill Simmons said at first that comparison is the thief, the thief of joy. What what does greatness look like for you when you look at those three, probably in particular? But maybe it's something broader than that that you see as greatness in in what we've had in the NBA over the last two decades. Well, you're right to invoke that um, aphorism. Um, 
I would add that a person's uh, challenge in life or the best way to, to measure success, I think, is to, as they say, pick up the heaviest stone you can find and carry it. By which I mean, whatever your potential is, like if you're, if you can know that you have this possibility of, of X and you're willing to try for that, that, and then you are able to accomplish that, that is pretty great, right? So the three of us who sit here are never going to be compared to uh, Michael Jordan, but did we reach our, our potential and our capacity? And I think one of the things that, um, that I find really wonderful about my own career is that I do think that for the most part, I, I got to be about as good as I could get. Like I didn't leave anything out there where I think, ah, oh, geez. Now that's like 97%. There of course are things that I would have done differently and, and all of that. So I think when you're looking at players, it, it of course doesn't make sense to compare people across time because like, what if Michael Jordan had had access to really great strength training? I don't know. Uh, you could make the case numerically that a lot more people got in, interested in basketball in the 80s and 90s as kids. And so anybody who was able to rise to the top in the 2000s and 2010s and tens is probably a lot better because there was so much more competition. Um, but I think a more interesting conversation is like who in our own worlds, not not necessarily Michael Jordan or, or Kobe Ryan or LeBron James, but like who is able to live up to that maxim of taking on the most difficult thing uh, and pulling it off. Um, I think, you know, you could make the case that Michael Jordan is sort of singular in that his job wasn't just to be great at basketball, but also to elevate the sport to a new level that it hadn't been at, which seems really difficult <laughs> to me um, because he, he then had to be the ambassador for the entire sport uh, which is not something that you would say for um, some of the other people that we would talk about in those conversations. Who are some of the greatest you've been around, Paul? And we don't need to know who they are, but through your lens. Well, I, like I really loved um, getting to know Kevin Garnett a little bit um, in training camp with the Minnesota Timberwolves, just because of how intense, how loyal he was, also how, smart and funny he was it's rare to find basketball players who are actually funny and he's one of those who actually is funny um and i think that uh well-roundedness is is probably you know nobody's ever going to say is kevin garnett the greatest basketball player in the world right um even though he was remarkable uh, but to me that ability to manage such an extreme skill set with also being personable and decent is pretty amazing as was true of Shaquille O'Neal who I mentioned I was in training camp with the Lakers with him and and he was just so um, at ease with himself and and I think a real leader of men when he wanted to be I think he is pretty content being a little bit of a jester but there's a world where if this is the ancient Roman empire. He could just decide we're going to go conquer Carthage or whatever the rival was. <laughs> Mate, um, I'm going to use one of your quotes um, and ask you to comment on it. You wrote, 
I think recently, heaven is arriving at the end of your life and realising that the story you've written with that life is a story someone would read. What's been the chapter in your life, mate, that you'd most like people to read? Hmm. Well, I, I would hope that it hasn't been written yet. I mean, I know that's a bit of a cop-out, but uh, you can uh, relate to this, Chris, that um, sports takes a big chunk of your life, not necessarily in a bad way. Um, I'm, of course, grateful that I got to spend as much time as I did as a professional athlete, but um, I would hope that I'm able to um, help people uh, in a way that is a little more oriented toward their fulfillment. Um, there's a book I love called The Second Mountain by David Brooks. He talks about how everyone's first mountain is usually the ego-based mountain. And I participated in that. I wanted to be, you guys probably did too, wanted to be as good and as famous as a basketball player as I could. And then you realize when you get to the first or the top of that first mountain that you aren't any happier because you've made that achievement. Um, and then you go through a, a period of, you walk through the, the valley of the shadow of death, as it were, uh, and you realize like the real uh, fulfillment, the real meaning comes from helping others, the building communities, um, helping ease suffering in some way. And I think like, I would hope that by being a basketball player, I was entertaining in some ways, but I don't know that that was, and I, and I also think that I really connected to a sense of personal betterment. I enjoyed getting better, but that was really individual. And so now as I move forward in my life, I hope that I'm able to build community, promote accountability within uh, groups of people, help people with some of these challenges that I see. So I guess I don't really mean it. I don't think that it is too much of a cop-out. Like I am, really optimistic about what comes next. I'm exhausted all the time because I'm trying to build a business and it's hard and I don't know what I'm doing much of the time. I'm 45 years old and dreadfully single and that is frustrating. Um, <laughs> but, but I have a, a fair bit of hope and optimism that some of the most interesting things I will do are still uh, coming down the road. We always think, mate, that... Um when we do things and we don't know what we're doing all the time, that if we're intense good, we tend to get, we tend to get reasonably good success. So, um, mate, we're going to put all of your links. We're going to send people to the process. We'll, we'll ask them to, to connect with you if they need, but mate, we, we can't thank you enough for, for joining us on our little podcast and spending half an hour. And as we said, your insight, uh, the lens you've seen your basketball career through is unique. Um, I've seen firsthand the process. I've seen firsthand what you are doing and how positively you are impacting people in the United States, but even more broadly than that as you grow. So again, from Wertho and I, Paul Shirley, thank you very much for joining us, mate. Thanks for saying that I'm unique, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> You're 6'10". <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs>